You join me as we pray again. And now, Lord Jesus Christ, you have, we have celebrated the fact that you died for us, you rose again, and that you are alive today. And we ask this morning now that you will speak to us clearly. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that when you rose, you rose victorious over all of the forces that oppose you, both human and, <clears throat> and spiritual. And we pray this morning that once again you will exercise your lordship in our lives. Uh, you know which hearts are submissive and receptive. You know which hearts are indifferent. And you know which hearts are hardened and resistant. And Lord, we pray that you will deal with each one of us according to the needs of our heart. Thank you that you love us, that you died for us, and that you now speak your living words to us. Give us ears that we may hear in Jesus' name. Amen. To say that we are living in difficult times is an understatement. Uh, Iraq is slowly spinning out of control, and both coalition forces and nationals are dying at an alarming rate. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict seems further from resolution than ever before, with lots of suffering on both sides. The threat from Al-Qaeda now is as real in Europe as it has been in North America for over two years. Closer to home in our own city, we have grieved at the, at the tragic and brutal death of a nine-year-old like Cecilia. And where these things may not immediately touch us, some of us fight evil at our own lives level. We battle the ravages of diseases like cancer, as some people in our congregation are doing right now. There are broken homes and marriages, the pain of estranged children. And if for some reason none of these things have touched us, there's the awful boredom of life, the same old, same old every day, dragging ourselves off to jobs that many of us hate because we've got bills to be paid. Working 20, 30, 40 years in our life, just looking forward to the day when we can stop doing it finally. And then a cruel twist of fate shatters our long-awaited dreams. And all we can do sometimes to alleviate the boredom is one more round of National Hockey League playoffs. And if sports doesn't interest us, there's always bachelor and bachelorettes and everybody loves Raymond and an endless stream of inane nonsense like that. But some people are turning elsewhere these days. Last Sunday's article in, in the Toronto Star, uh, columnist David Graham, in an article entitled, What a Trend We Have in Jesus, says this. Jesus is hot. He's grabbing headlines around the world with Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code, and will Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. Academics are exploring the cultural phenomena of Jesus in books. He is alive in music and fashion. Chris Hoy, a partner in Teenage Millionaire, a company that sells t-shirts, says, We were looking for pop icons of the 21st century and Jesus topped the list. Fox, a history professor at the University of Southern California, says, He has made it into our pantheon of heroes. And Barbara Atkin, fashion director of Holt Renfrew, observes, We are fascinated with Jesus now, and here's the reason she gives, because we are searching for comfort, hope, and meaning in a fearful world. It also helps the celebrity status that each time Jesus makes a comeback, argues Professor Fox, each time he returns, his image is aligned to suit the times. They are right in looking for Jesus for answers in times like this. But a, but a Jesus who is constantly modified and morphed to suit our own times and our preferences is not going to give us the answers that we want. Not even the bloodied action hero that many people see Mel Gibson's passion as having portrayed. After all, if that was all that Jesus was, noble though his example might have been, he finally was overcome by Rome. 
what good, what help will he be against the machinations of Al-Qaeda and a whole stream of uh, suicide bombers that are waiting to blow the world apart. No, we need another vision. We need another vision of Jesus, not a contemporary vision. And precisely because not contemporary, therefore able to be much more relevantly speaking to the times in which we live in today. And so I want to take you 20 centuries back today. And near the end of the first century, when a tender-hearted pastor whose name was John had been exiled to the island of Patmos. Rome was the ascendant power and this man John was away from his church. The church was severely persecuted by Rome at that time. And John, as every good pastor should do, was probably uh, anguished that he could not be with his own people, helping them to live through these troubled and difficult times. And in that condition, in that frame of mind, John suddenly sees a picture of Jesus. Very, very different from 21st century contemporary versions of Jesus that everybody is flocking to. Here's what it looks like. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all his brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And many years ago, I heard of an author who tried to paint this picture and of course he ended up with something very grotesque. That's because he had missed the point altogether. These images were not intended to be visually represented. Rather, these are biblical images and metaphors that are rich with meaning in the rest of Scripture. And we are intended to use that knowledge to pour them into our understanding of this vision of Jesus. And so, will you allow me to do that for you this morning? First of all, we see him dressed in a robe. Clothes often, certainly in those times and even today, in many cases, clothes telegraph the role that we play. And our reaction to people, especially people in authority, often is determined by the clothes they're wearing. If you're driving along the road one day and someone suddenly comes up and puts a hand up there, it's going to make a big difference whether he's got a policeman's uniform and a cruiser is flashing nearby or whether it's just some plain clothes individual. Your reaction will be totally different because the clothes that he wears immediately telegraphs the message to you about his role and it determines your response. So too, the first thing, the first thing we are drawn to our attention about this risen Lord Jesus Christ is his dress and these are the dress of a priest. Jesus is first and foremost our priest. And human priests and pastors like me are important only to one degree that we take you and draw your attention to Jesus, our high priest. In the Latin, the word for priest is pontifex, which means bridge, which is a very, very appropriate word because Jesus is a bridge from you and me to God. Why do we need a bridge, you say? All that blood and gore and the passion was intended to drive home that for us. 
Because of our sin, it separates us from a holy God. And Jesus, in his death, is the one bridge between sinful, imperfect human beings and a perfect, holy Christ. And for those of you who may be visiting with us today, at the end of the service, we would encourage you to pick up a little gift packet that we have prepared for you, which has it along with a little booklet, a tape in it. And that tape is basically the message that I preached last weekend, which is an amplification of this first and most critical dimension of Jesus' ministry as our, high, as our priest and how he functions as a link between broken men and women and between God. So we would encourage you, if you're a visitor, please pick up one of these. It is our gift to you. Now, the second thing we have drawn our attention to is from his clothes to his head. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. If robes speak about dress and roll, sorry, head, the head speaks of a person's character. And there are two things in particular that this image draws our attention to. First of all, head white like wool. White wool in the Bible was a symbol of purity. And fire in the Bible was the symbol of two things. That which purifies and that which destroys. Now in this particular case, because Jesus is already shown to be our high priest, the fire in his eyes is not a fire that destroys, but a fire that purifies. And so we have put before us here a picture of our priest who is both himself pure and who purifies you and me. You see, to live in tough times like we are living in these days, we don't need formulas to cope with, we need character. It's what God does inside of us that gets us ready to face life. And so rather than a Jesus who is continually morphing to suit our present preferences and the changing times in which we live, we are presented with an unchanging Jesus who morphs you and me and makes us into a different kind of people and increasingly pure. This priest is not only a bridge between impure people and a holy God, he continues to purify us to make us like the God that we worship and therefore we are able to stand in tough times. The next thing we are seen shown is his feet are like bronze glowing in a furnace. Now statues with bronze metal feet <laughs> may seem strange to you and to me, but not to the first century uh, people who, understood, who knew their Bible. See, this would take their minds immediately back 500 years before this time to the time of Daniel. When Daniel was serving under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And Babylon was a dominant world power at that time. And in a vision that Daniel saw, he saw an image that had four parts to it. And he was given the interpretation of that dream. And those four parts represented four kingdoms that followed one in succession after another. First Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece under Alexander the Great, and then of course Rome, which was the dominant power at the time John received this vision. And the feet in that vision which represented Rome were feet made of iron and clay. Now iron and clay do not mix. And though there is some semblance of strength in an in a statue that has feet of iron, if there's clay in it, it means it's going to topple one day. There's weakness built right into it. So no matter how impressive and strong the mighty Roman Empire seemed at that time, that image that Daniel received reminded him that it was a flawed base and it was one day going to topple. And of course, within four centuries, that was proved to be absolutely true when the mighty Roman Empire fell. And Gibbon, when he cataloged the cause, the fall of the Roman Empire, shows us very clearly that it was because of uh, internal weaknesses and not because of external uh, strengths of enemies that Rome finally crumbled. In sharp contrast to that, Jesus stands on feet of bronze. Now, bronze is an alloy mixture of iron and, and uh, copper. Now, the interesting thing about this, unlike iron and clay, is that they form a perfect amalgam. Iron is strong, but it has a tendency to rust. Copper does not rust, but it isn't strong. 
iron and copper together give us bronze that is both strong and enduring. Which is a beautiful picture that this kingdom, unlike the kingdom of Rome, will stand because it is both strong and it is the only eternal kingdom. And of course, while Rome fell within four centuries, Jesus' kingdom has continued to conquer human hearts. But not with the sword, not with the cruelty of Rome, but with a very different kind of power altogether. And we begin to approach that in the next vision. It says, his voice, his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Interesting, before we are told the words that the voice speaks, we are given an indication of the kind of sound of that voice. Tone and timber are the first things that are addressed. And of course, you know, you and I know that today. People tell us that uh, the verbal uh, content of, of communication is much less important than tone and timber. In fact, you and I know from our own experiences that we often, our response is often shaped not just by the words that people speak to us, but by the tone and the timber in which they speak. And so, this, this priest of ours, this pure and purifying priest, this one who stands, whose kingdom is the only kingdom that is both enduring and strong, is about to speak, but before the words, he prepares our hearts to listen properly. And the image is a beautiful one. He says his voice is like the sound of rushing waters. Many of you know I often walk in the ravine here in the early spring, when they've, when they've had enough warm days to begin to melt the winter snows. The, the, the creek swells to many, many times its volume. And on those days, I often go off the main path to, uh, to my favorite spot there, where the stream is at its most turbulent. And the sound is loudest. And I just stand there. And as I stand there slowly, I stop praying. I stop speaking. I grow silent. Because all I want to do is to listen to the sound. And it is a sound that does two things to me at the same time. It both overwhelms me and it fills me with anticipation. It is a sound that is so big that it quietens me. It is a sound that humbles me without humiliating me. What a beautiful picture I thought of Jesus. Yes, our priest is going to speak. But before he speaks, he gets us ready to listen. His is a voice that both overwhelms and creates anticipation. And we want to hear what he has to say. And then come the seven stars in his right hand. Stars in the first century represented for people destiny. They believed the stars controlled their lives. Astrologers were among some of the most important people in those days. Today we have all kinds of variations of that. We have people who read horoscopes daily. We have people who get people to read their palms and tea leaves. They are desperately looking for something in this fragile nature which will give them some consolation, some understanding of the future, some degree of peace if only I know what's going to happen. But they don't control our lives. The stars in the hand of Jesus gives us a completely different image. It says to those first century Christians, uh, no, 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 you think the stars control your lives? I control the stars. Individual lives and the destiny of the world says this image lies in the hands of Jesus Christ. Not only that, he says, my seven stars are messengers. They are angelic messengers. And the angels in the scriptures are those who are waiting upon God to do God's will for us. God, this is a picture of Jesus ruling the universe. He does not tell us the future. The stars are not intended to tell us the future. They are intended to point to the fact that God's hand is in control of everything that happens. That though we do not know the future, we know the one who is absolutely and totally in control of the future. And who rules? Who rules through his angelic messengers and accomplishes his will and his purposes. And then come the words. A sharp, double-edged sword out of his mouth. 
What a contrast to the sword of Rome. <laughs> to John over whom dangled the sword of Rome. He was in exile because of Rome's authority. His church was severely persecuted because of Rome's authority. Today, of course, we do not have Rome's sword hanging over our head. We have uh, suicide bombers. We have planes that can become lethal weapons. We have anthrax that can be mailed. We have all kinds of things that threaten our lives. The temptation, of course, is to fight force with force. Listen to what Eugene Peterson says. Any beleaguered community terrorized by the brandished sword is tempted to meet force with force, sword with sword. But while scripture is full of military action, it finally becomes in Jesus a metaphor for the word of God. Christ does not come with the sword, but with his word, which is like a sword. God's will is articulated sharply and penetratingly out of Christ's mouth. Those words conquer. Christ's words are not limp. They cut through willful resistance, divide good from evil, overcome rebellion, and establish righteousness. The power that the world acknowledges comes out of the mouth of a gun, but the power that the person of faith respects comes from the mouth of Christ. This is the vision that John was given on the Isle of Patmos. Now, tell me, can you imagine? Can you imagine a greater contrast between this vision and the one we celebrated on Good Friday? Hanging upon a cross, brutally beaten, desperately crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's about as far as Gibson's picture took us. But can you put this one side by side with this vision? It's no picture. It's all words. <laughs> a robe with a golden sash. We have a priest who is a bridge between us and God. White hair and blazing eyes. A priest who is both pure and purifying. His feet like glowing bronze. A king whose kingdom is both enduring and strong. His voice like the sound of rushing waters, one who speaks to us in such a way that he both overwhelms us and fills us with anticipation, who humbles us but who never humiliates us. The seven stars in his right hand says that he controls the destiny of the universe and of individuals. A sharp double-edged sword out of his mouth, one who speaks powerful words to us and equips us with the only weapons that are able to fight back. We don't fight back violence with violence, we fight them back with the word of God's word. And then his face shining like the brilliant sun. And at the center of this vision. Remember Revelation is also poetry. The seventh thing. And right at the center. Means the most important thing. His voice was like the sound of many waters. This Jesus who spoke to John. In the first century. This non-contemporary Jesus comes to speak to us in the 21st century because he's always relevant. You don't have to change Jesus to make him relevant. You see Jesus as he is and that's the only way to become relevant. <coughs> what's more, what's more, the dominant context in which we recover this conviction that this Jesus on the right-hand side is the real Jesus, not the one on the left-hand side today. The place where we break through to this conviction is in corporate worship, which is what we've been doing today. Remember, John was on the Lord's day when he saw this vision. He could no longer be with his churches, but he was doing what he did with his churches. He was worshipping. And on the Lord's day, as he was worshipping, his eyes were opened and he saw Jesus. By the way, that's what happened on that first Easter as well. There were two men, two of Jesus' this outer circle of disciples. 
that were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus about seven hours away. The day's journey. And they were heartbroken. Oh, they still loved Jesus, but their hope was all gone because all they, for all they knew, he was crucified, dead and gone. And they were rehearsing and talking among themselves their dreams that had been so cruelly shattered. Oh, if only it would have been, it might have been, is what they were talking about. When suddenly Jesus joins himself to them, they just don't recognize him as Jesus. And as they begin to talk and tell him all the things they were talking about, as if he didn't know, he begins to talk to them. And this is what we read in Luke's Gospel. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. All that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What a sermon that must have been. Later, a little bit later when they sat down to eat, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? There they were on that first Lord's day. And Jesus appeared to them. The double-edged sword from his mouth was an exposition of scripture that set their hearts burning. But here's the interesting thing, brothers and sisters. They didn't know still he was Jesus. Even though their hearts were being stirred in a way that had never been, they still didn't know it was Jesus. When did they realize it was Jesus? Not when he was preaching the sermon, but when they were breaking bread. And breaking of bread, which of course symbolizes the Eucharist, that central act of Christian worship, really in one sense gathers together all of our worship activities. Something happens when we are gathered together in worship. And then we begin to realize because we suddenly see Jesus for who he is. Remember the lampstand. Jesus said in this vision, the lampstand for the churches and Jesus was among the lampstand. Churches are not perfect. We are not perfect people. But guess what? It is in the middle of imperfect churches gathered for worship that Jesus shows up. Why is that you might say? It is that the church is doing mysterious things like breaking bread, going through its rituals of worship. They encountered the Jesus, not just the Jesus of the Passion, but this awesome Jesus of the book of Revelation. And they hear those living words that set their hearts on flame. The same last week in another article in the newspaper, I read about a man who, though he was not a Christian at the time, speaks eloquently of how the rituals of worship speak to, spoke to him. He says this, as a young boy, I would periodically accompany my closest friend Craig Sullivan to Mass. In the very Catholic early 1960s city of St. Louis, this world was thick with Latin ritual and mystery. I couldn't take my eyes off the richness of it all, this foreign world that hinted at so much that was beyond my understanding. I was transfixed by something I could not quite grasp, but neither could I ignore. Something that was powerful and present, beautiful but frightening. I loved its unabashed preference for mystery, its clear sense that there was no more important place to be. God seemed real to me at the Annunciation Church. The majesty of it made me feel most human. I learned from those days that only when God is almost felt and yet out of reach do we know our deepest selves. And that public religious ritual, which is what you're doing today here, can cultivate religious souls 
who upon yielding some of the power of individuality and rationality find the unintelligible available even if unknowable. What I learned from his beautiful religious world eventually rearranged my life. There is a direct relationship between what I experienced and what I now do with my life. In feeling bound to God, we are moved to serve God's creatures. And listen to this sentence. Without an occasional gaze, and I would say a regular habitual gaze, at the power that sets everything into motion, the power that makes life both more and less knowable, at the same time we are not fully human. Without religious ritual, the past cannot claim us, and the heart of life will elude us. That is why it is when we are gathered together in worship, we place ourselves in a position where we will finally see Jesus as he truly is. Not this constantly modified Jesus to assimilate himself to our times and our preferences. Not a Jesus who is becoming increasingly more human like David Graham's Jesus was. But this unchanging, awesome, glorious Jesus who changes us. Who lifts us above our times so that we are not tyrannized and imprisoned by our times. That is why I label this message, if you read in your bulletin, what CNN can never do for us. Faced with all of the perplexities of the world that we live in, we look to Ted Turner to tell us how to think about these things. All we get is a rehashing of the same facts and more facts that alarm us, and an endless array of experts who are arguing with each other as to how to interpret these things. What kind of security and hope and stability are we going to get from that? We need at least once a week to shut off all these things and show up in this place and put ourselves in the place of mystery. Where we worship. Where we are handling a God who is much bigger than we can. Where we do things and sing words that we cannot fully explain. Because it is here that He will show up. And if you are not here, you will miss it. So for those of you who are visiting with us, if you're not in the habit of attending church regularly, I would invite you to just come back. Come back and worship with us. Two weeks from today, on April the 25th, we're starting a new series of messages that we've called Highway 27. One sermon on each book of the New Testament. So that you will have an opportunity to listen to, to experience what these two men experienced that day when Jesus took the scriptures and explained to them everything that was written. The only scriptures they had at that time was what we call the Old Testament. But today, 20 centuries later, we have the New Testament and every book of the New Testament has Jesus at the center. And the purpose of that New Testament is to amplify and explode and enlarge our understanding of Jesus. And so weekend after weekend as you come here to be led in worship, to participate in those elements that are mysterious, as you hear the word of God expounded, you're putting yourself in a place where the sword of God's word can maybe turn your slow hearts into burning hearts and open your eyes to see Jesus in a way that you might never see him again. So we would invite you to join us. Now you might say, yeah, but you say, what? You say, I'm not yet a believer. I'm not yet a Christian. It's okay. There was one of those disciples of Jesus who was like that on that first Easter. His name was Thomas. When the rest of the disciples had seen Jesus, they came to Thomas and said, Thomas, we've seen Jesus. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were, I will not into his hand and my hand into his side, I will not believe it. And that phrase in the English translated, I will not believe it, in the Greek is the strongest possible way you can state something negative. It was an emphatic refusal to believe. I will not believe. <laughs> but here was the amazing thing. A week later his disciples were in the house and Thomas was with them. He was a man who categorically said, Ah, bunk. 
I don't believe all that stuff. And I'm not going to believe it unless... And yet a week later he shows up for worship. And guess what? He met Jesus. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hands and put it into my sight. Stop doubting and believe. And in the original it means, Don't continue in this state of settled refusal to believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus said to him, Because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So come, come anyway. Come wherever you are on your spiritual pilgrimage. (coughs) Come and join us in worship. Come and hear the word of God explained to you. Put yourself in a place where your heart can be set on fire. And where your eyes can be opened. To see the only Jesus that's going to make life relevant for you and enable you to live. And for those of you who already know Jesus who already know Him as your Savior and your Lord, you need it just as much. You and I need it just as much. We are are at the mercy of the same uh, difficulties that I outlined at the beginning of the message. And we too can be so easily seduced into looking in all the wrong places and hearing all the wrong voices and getting alarmed one day to another in the kind of world in which we live in, whether it's the macro world of evil or the micro world within our own hearts. We too need to recapture this vision that John had. We too need to hear the voice once again speak clearly. We too need to be enveloped by mystery. Which alone can give meaning to life. Because we are in touch with something larger than ourselves. We too need to hear what each book of the New Testament has to say about our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Not only for ourselves. You need to hear it for one more reason. Remember the seven stars that were in Jesus' hand that were his messengers? They are not only angels, they are you and me as well. God, Jesus speaks his powerful word into the lives of people today through you and me who know him. And tell me if our hearts are not burning with the word of God, if our eyes have not seen Jesus in all his glory, (coughs) what message are you going to tell your fellow workers? What message are you going to give to your neighbors? What message are you going to give to your sons and to your daughters and your relatives and your friends and your associates? No, it is to the extent that you see and experience this Christ in your own worship. It is to the extent that you are touched and gripped by mystery. It is to the extent that this word of God begins to grip your heart that you will go out and say to them, Listen, listen, I have something to say. That article by David Graham finished with these words. He quoted a media critic by the name of Neil Gabler who has written several books on popular culture, has drawn a clear distinction between Jesus and God. And according to him, the reason Jesus has become a celebrity and God has not is simple. He argues, there's no decent visual for God. Guess what? He's dead wrong. Revelation chapter 1 has given us an awesome vision, awesome visual of God. It is this mighty Jesus, this priest who is pure and purifying. This Jesus who stands on feet of bronze, king of a kingdom, the only kingdom that endures and is strong. This Jesus whose voice is like the sound of mighty rushing waters. This Jesus who speaks living words to us. This Jesus who holds in his hands the stars and controls the destinies of nations, of the universe and yours and mine. This Jesus is the visual of God that we need. Let us worship Him. Uh, last night, uh, before the service, uh, so, so again, out in the ravine and I was praying, I had a very clear and a definite sense as I was praying.
praying through the whole order of service that everything that happened in the service was really to get ready for the benediction. I just felt very strongly about that. Uh, and God confirmed that to me also because right near the end of that time, the passage of scripture in the Psalms that I was reading yesterday dealt exactly with that. You see, that if you were listening carefully, there was one part of that vision that I didn't say anything about. Because there was a seventh element to that vision that John saw. And it says Jesus had a face that shone with all the brilliance of the sun. What biblical image was that drawing upon? Way back, very early on in the Old Testament, when God established the priesthood, he said to them, you will bless the people and I will put my blessing upon them. And the blessing was simply, may the Lord make his face to shine upon you. And so, I want to finish the sermon now. Would you stand and receive the benediction, please? For those of you who are visiting with us, the word benediction simply comes from two Latin words, which means good words. (laughs) And these are good words from God. But we saw that his word was a double-edged sword, and this blessing has two edges to it. One edge cuts and the other edge heals. The cutting edge of the blessing is simply this. May God take every single thing that you're looking to in your life for satisfaction and for meaning and for significance that right now is keeping you away from Jesus and may he destroy its capacity to bring you any satisfaction at all. And here's the good side, the healing side. (laughs) And may this risen Lord Jesus Christ, this glorious one that you've seen in so many different ways today, may he speak those words that will set your heart burning. May he touch your eyes and he opens opens them so that you may see Jesus as one who is not only reliable, but a Jesus who is desirable. May May a taste be born in your hearts today that nothing else will satisfy except submission to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Go in Jesus' name.